I was thinking about the, the Gospel of John and, and the concept of an introduction, because that's what we're looking at this evening together, is John's introduction to Jesus. And it got me thinking about introductions, like this one, a, a long time ago in a galaxy, what? Far, far away, right? Or this one, space, the final frontier, these are the voyages of the... There's the nerds in the, the audience, right? You guys started to answer thinking everybody was going to get in then... Star Wars, everybody's there. Okay, I get started. Star Trek, we're losing some people. How about the, this one? Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip. Gilligan's Island. Or here's the story of a lovely lady who was bringing up three very lovely girls. Or this one may be for some of our younger audience out there, but it starts in West Philadelphia, born and raised on a... Playground is where I spent most of my days, right? That's Will Smith from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. But these are all introductions. And they're all introductions, as we just proved, that have left their mark on us. Maybe because we've heard them time and time and time again, or maybe because of the, the profundity of it. When you think about the introduction to Star Wars a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and you just think about the significance of that and the weight of that. Well, the introduction that we're coming to in this series in the Gospel of John and John 1, 1 through 18 is an introduction that blows all the other ones out of the water. An introduction is meant to acquaint two parties. Right? Some of you may have introduced yourself to other men here tonight that you didn't know before. Well, John, in this opening part of the Gospel, is introducing us to Jesus. He wants you and I to get acquainted with the main character of his gospel, with the main focus of this book. He wants us to, to get to know Jesus, the word. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them up to John chapter 1. And I want us to start with just the first six words there. It says this, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. Now, Augustine or Augustine, if I'm going to pronounce words correctly. Augustine once said this about the Gospel of John. He said, the Gospel of John is, is deep enough for an elephant to swim, but it's shallow enough for a child not to drown. So you may find yourself on a, a wide range of, of where you fall on that spectrum. Theologically speaking, spiritually speaking, you may be a seasoned believer, somebody who's been around the block many times. And in fact, this may not be your first study of the Gospel of John. And you're sitting there going, great, I love this book. It's so rich. It's so deep. And we're going to talk about terms like logos and the word and what that means and the richness of that. Some of you may be brand new to the faith. This may be the first time you've looked at anything from the Gospel of John. And you're thinking, man, I, I, I really hope we explain this because I'm, I'm already lost. Others of you are somewhere in between that. And yes, this opening, in the beginning was the word, is a, an impactful opening from John. And it's one that we could spend weeks just unpacking the concept of Jesus as the divine logos, the divine word. We're not going to, but we could, right? But what I hope to do is just to, to break it down a little bit more simply for us tonight, and that's by explaining what that word, what that concept of the word or the logos meant in three broad categories. In the Old Testament, the word of God, the logos, as it was translated in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures, it represented God's power, his wisdom, and his creative activity. His power, his wisdom, and his creative activity. 
In fact, in the, the book of Genesis, the Bible opens with God using that word, that powerful, creative word, when it says, in God said, let there be light. Right? And God said, and God said, and God said, and we see that God is speaking using his logos, using the, the power of his word to create everything that we now know. Later on in Psalm 107, 20, the psalmist says, the Lord sent his word and healed them. So then we, we see the, the power of God's word to even bring healing and comfort to his people. Isaiah 55, 11 there the Lord tells the prophet, my word will not return to me empty. In other words, when I send my word out, it's going to accomplish its purpose. That's the, the word in the Old Testament. But the word also represented God's revelation of himself. It wasn't just his power and his creative activity, but it was him revealing who he is. Jeremiah 1.4, the word of the Lord came to me, the prophet. Isaiah 9, 8, the Lord sent a messenger, one with a word. And certainly in, in John chapter 1, the, the self-revelation of God is, is one of the key components, the key elements, the key aspects of what he meant when he said that in the beginning was the word. And then there was the, the Greek realm outside of scriptures. This was the realm that viewed the word as embodying reason and rationale. The word was the reason for all that is. That was the, the Greek concept of logos. So John is taking all of these concepts and he's speaking into a, a culture that's influenced and informed by all of these different concepts. And he begins his gospel. He introduces us to Jesus by saying, in the beginning was the word, the logos. And yeah, there's echoes of all of those different concepts, the power of God, the creative, creative activity of God, the, the, the self-revelation of God, the the, the reason, the wisdom from the, the Greek sphere of things. And all of those things are echoing around this concept of Jesus. This is the backdrop for John's introduction of Christ. And yet, as we're going to find out in these next 18 verses, John chose to define the word logos in his own unique way. In this introduction, we are going to meet Jesus. And the first thing I want us to do tonight is I want us to meet the divine Jesus. That's point number one. Meet the divine Jesus, that Jesus is fully God. And that's one of the, 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 the points that John was making here when he says, in the beginning was the word. All deference to, to D.A. Carson. In fact, his work in the Pillar New Testament commentary on the gospel of John is probably the best one out there. If you were going to purchase one commentary and you wanted a commentary that was going to go deep, I would commend to you D.A. Carson's work on the gospel of John from the Pillar New Testament commentary. However, I have to take issue with him right off the bat here because one of the statements John, that Carson made on this opening section of John is he said it's a masterpiece in planned ambiguity. A masterpiece in planned ambiguity. Ambiguity meaning it's, it's a little un, uncertain. It's a little confusing what he's driving at here. And I have to take issue with Dr. Carson here because I, I don't believe that really this passage is ambiguous at all when we really consider what John is, is saying here. In fact, in the first five verses, I think we get three very plain statements about Christ and about his deity. And the first one comes in verses one through two. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The first thing that we see regarding the deity of the word is the word is the eternal God. So right away, 
John is letting us know that this word had no beginning. In the beginning was the word. Which beginning is this that John is talking about? Well, what does this sound like? What other passage in the Bible does John 1.1 sound like? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. Was John, the apostle, familiar with Genesis 1.1? Yes. Do you think this was intentional? Yes. Which beginning is addressed in Genesis 1.1? The beginning of all beginnings. There was no beginning prior to Genesis 1.1. Why? Because God himself has no beginning because he's eternal. He's uncreated. So for John to say, to say at the very opening of this gospel, in the beginning was the word, means the word was there at the beginning of all beginnings, which implies what? The word had no beginning. That the word is eternal. There's never been a time in which the word was not. In 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, John said of Jesus that or the one which was from the beginning. Again, a similar concept there. In the beginning was the word, and the word, he goes on to say, was with God. That word with suggests intimate proximity of relationship. That they enjoyed unhindered fellowship with one another. Again, 1 John 1, 2, the same author says that the word was with the Father and then was manifested to us. But he was with the Father. So John is establishing he was in the beginning and he was with God, which implies that he wasn't the Father, but that he's a separate person from the Father, yet also eternal along with the Father. Verse 18 of chapter 1, which we'll get to a little bit more in depth in just a moment here, says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. There's that language of being with God. He has made him known. So the word is the eternal God. He was there at the beginning and being eternal, being with God, he then was also God. And that's the next statement he makes. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. Now this is where the individuals with the name tags that come and knock on your door want to take issue with our Bibles. And they want to say, see, there's no article here. So this should be translated, the word was a God, your Bibles are corrupt. Well, no, they're not. In fact, so emphatic was John that here that, that this was dealing with God, that, that the word theos for God is actually at the beginning of this sentence. God was the word, or God the word was. He's emphasizing that this is full, full deity here. But here's the problem, and this is the response when they come and sit down with you, and they want to open up their, their Bibles and say, see, it's, it's wrong here. If John had said the word was the God, he would have been committing heresy. Because what he would have been doing is saying the word, in, in other words, Jesus is the only person of the Godhead. That the Father is not God, the Spirit is not God, because the word is the God. So it would have been opening the door to an incorrect view of God. So the, the, the definite article is not necessary for us to understand that this is not a God, but this, this is in fact the true Christian God, the only God that we know of. You guys see the depth of the elephant already, right? But what was John's point just simply in this opening couple of verses is, is he's simply trying to argue for us and show for us that the word is the eternal God. He had no beginning. He was with the Father, meaning he's not the Father. But he's also eternal, which means he is God. So we see that the Trinity even beginning to be formed here in the opening introduction of John's gospel. Again, not ambiguous in its affirmation of his eternality. The second thing that it affirms, though, is that the word is the creator God which would make sense if he was there at the beginning, then he's going to participate in the beginning of the beginnings. 
verse 3, John goes on. He says, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, as he continues on. As eternal God, Jesus had a hand in the creation of everything that has been made. Again, John is not ambiguous here. All things were made through him. Hebrews 1.10 says, you, Jesus, speaking of Jesus, laid the foundation. Colossians 1.16, by Christ, all things were created. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, through Jesus, all things have come. This is a, a doctrine that's affirmed time and time again for us in the New Testament. But Jesus is not just the eternal God, but he's also the creator God. Again, not ambiguous, but plain for us. And then finally, he is the life-giving God. He's the life-giving God, verses 4 through 5 there. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Only God can be said to possess life this way to be the source of life and light. John 3, 15, Jesus is described as the one possessing eternal life. John 5, 21, the son gives life to whom he wishes. John 10, 10, the son gives life and gives life abundantly. John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. John 12, 46, I have come as a light into the world. Again, little to no ambiguity here. This is God that he's introducing us to. In the beginning was the word. Meet the divine Jesus. Pick up in verse 6, though, because he continues. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is not John, our author. In fact, our author never names himself in the entire gospel refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved when he's referencing himself. Not a statement of pride or arrogance, but a statement of humility. He was so overwhelmed that, that the Son of God would put his affection upon him, that he was prone to, to take that title. So whenever you see John in the, the gospel, you're reading about John the, the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness, verse 7, to bear witness about the light the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Again, this is John the Baptist, the one that we read about in Isaiah 40, verse 3, where it says, a voice calling, clear the way for the Lord. John 1, John the Baptist then says, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, Matthew makes it plain. This is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet. In Luke 1, 16 through 17, speaking of John, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to their God. John was, was God's forerunner, meant to pre prepare Israel for the coming of Christ. Meant to, in his own right, introduce Jesus. He was the, the forerunner, he was the testifier, he was the witness, and he was going out with these messages, Matthew 3, 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1, 4, John appeared preaching repentance. Luke 3, 3, he came preaching a baptism of repentance. And then John's most significant statement he makes in John 1, 29, and we'll get there where it says what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was why John came. John's ministry was to get to verse 29 of John's gospel, chapter 1. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
He came to prepare people to receive and welcome Jesus. Repent, get ready, he's coming, he's on his way, he's going to arrive. Behold, here he is, here's the Lamb of God. All these sins that you've been coming out to me to be baptized and repent from, this is the one who's going to deal with those sins. Receive him. Our author, John, wants to make sure we're clear on this. Verse 8, he was not the light. See, a lot of people were going out to John the Baptist thinking, man, this is the one. He's the Messiah. And John wanted to make it abundantly clear. No, 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 no. This is not the Messiah. This is simply the one, verse 8, who came to bear witness about the light. To come to say, look, the, the light is coming. The one that you need is coming. I'm not him. I'm just here to get you ready for him. The anticipation was building and the people, again, were flocking to see John. And yet John, in turn, was pointing them not to himself, but to the one who he would say, look, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. You want to follow someone just like he told a couple of his disciples? Don't follow me anymore. Go follow him. You don't need me anymore. That's the one you need. Go follow Jesus. See, y'all, from Genesis 3.15, 3.16, and the, the, the promise to, to Eve and to the serpent. Hey, look, serpent, through one of Eve's offspring, yeah, you're going to strike his heel, but he's going to what? He's going to crush your head. From that moment on, people were waiting for, anticipating, looking for the one that would undo the, the wrong done by the fall. They were looking for the one that was going to come on the scene and be the rescuer of Israel. They were looking for the Davidic king of 1 Samuel, the one that was going to come on the scene and the one that was going to reign forever and ever and ever the one who was going to undo the the oppression, the one who at at this point in time, they were looking to say, hey, get Rome out of here and let's make Israel like it was under Solomon's reign. Though their expectations were far too small for what Jesus actually came to do, they were ready for the Messiah. They were anticipating the Messiah. They were awaiting the Messiah. And John wants us to feel some of that in his introduction of Jesus. He wants us to meet Jesus the awaited one. That's our second point tonight. It's meet the awaited Jesus. Not just is, is he God, is he divine, but he's also the one that people were longing for, waiting for, looking for, searching for. And John the Baptist was sent and he was the one who was preparing the way, saying, I'm not the light, but I'm here to testify about the light. Verse nine, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This statement here is a statement about the divinity and the the messianic role of Christ. We go back to the Old Testament here and we read verses like this, Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. This is a messianic passage, anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Another messianic passage, Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Your light has come. Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Again, that statement of deity. Jesus, God, is our light. Jesus is the light now, as John is introducing him. And then in the New Testament, John would say in 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. 
So for John to say this is the true light is for John to say this is God. This is the Messiah. The one you've been waiting for, looking for, searching for, hoping for, praying for, longing for. He's here. It's Jesus. It's this one. Here he is. Behold the Lamb of God. He makes that statement where he says in verse 9 there, the true light which gives light to everyone. The true light which gives light to everyone. And that may be a, a little bit of a, a stumbling block for us to, to understand, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean that everybody is, is saved? Well, no, it doesn't mean that everybody's saved, but it means at least everybody has the capacity to understand what we're talking about here on, on the, the, the surface level. John Calvin was commenting on this verse. He said this, For we know that men have this special quality which raises them above other animals. They are endowed with reason and intelligence, and they bear the distinction between right and wrong engraved on their conscience. Thus, there is no man to whom some awareness of the eternal light does not penetrate. Maybe you can hear some echoes of Romans chapter 1 there. Or Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, right? Romans chapter 1, Paul picks up on that theme and he says, look, that which can be known about God has been plain from the dawn of time, from creation. But what do men do? They suppress the truth. It's not that they never had access to the light. It's that they suppress the light. But no, the true light, which gives light to everyone, had come. Jesus was not just to be the Messiah and the hope for the Jews. He was not just to be the Messiah and the hope for the disciples. He was not just to be the Messiah and the hope for John. No, he was the Messiah and the hope for everyone and is still that today. Verse 10, this light was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In this passage that we just read, verses 10 through 13, there's two groups of people who missed the significance of Jesus' arrival. Though they were awaiting his arrival, they missed his arrival. And the first is the world. He came to the world and the world missed him. The world did not receive him, verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. In verse 10, we find both the amazing and the amazingly tragic. The amazing is contained in what he said, look, the, the, the world which was made through him, he entered into that. We're going to talk about that more in just a moment here, but but he's, he's laying that, the incarnation out for us and the incredulity of the fact that the creator entered into his creation. He's saying that's, that's an amazing reality. And yet the, the amazingly tragic fact is that the world did not recognize their creator, did not receive him, did not embrace him, did not welcome him. Again, Romans 1, they suppressed the truth, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And so the world at large missed Jesus. But the second group, and this is perhaps even more tragic, is his own missed him. The Jewish people missed him. The ones that had the promises of the Old Testament missed him. The ones that had Isaiah 53 not only missed him, but fulfilled Isaiah 53 by turning him over to be crucified. John 1.11, he came to his own 
and his own people did not receive him. In John chapter 4, verse 22, Jesus is interacting with the woman at the well. One of my favorite texts in the Gospel of John there. And in John chapter 4, he's interacting with her and he's talking with her. And she asks him this question. She says, hey, um, there's these two mountains. You guys worship down there. You Jews worship down there. We worship up here in Samaria. Which one's right? And Jesus responds. And one of the things he says to her, and it's not the focus of his response. So sometimes we lose it. But what does he say? He says, salvation is from the Jews. Look, salvation is from the Jews. We need to understand that, that Jesus was a Jew, that the Messiah was Jewish and came first and foremost to the Jews. In fact, we read that in Romans 1.16, yes? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to the Jew, what? First. To the Jew first. And then there's Matthew chapter 23 verses 37 through 38, where Jesus laments and grieves and weeps over the rejection of his people. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you and taken you into myself like a mother hen would do her chicks. He's grieved that his own people rejected him. And it's a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter one, verse three, where it says, look, even an ox knows its owner. And yet my people have rejected their creator. That rejection would look like many things in John's gospel, as we'll encounter throughout our study. But in John 5, 15 through 16, the Jews begin persecuting Jesus because he had healed someone on the Sabbath. In John 5, 18, they're seeking to kill him because he had called God his father. In John 7, 20, they accuse him of having a demon. In John 8, 13, the Pharisees call him a liar. John 8, 48 and 52, again, they accuse him of having a demon. And then Peter in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 23, highlights the greatest offense, and that is they say, this Jesus whom you Jews crucified, delivered over to the hands of lawless men. See, Jesus came to the Jews, and the Jews rejected him. These were his own people the people who had the promises, the people who were waiting for deliverance, the people looking for the Messiah, the people ready for the Messiah, the people most primed to receive and embrace the Messiah, and yet he came and they missed him. Not only did they miss him, but they rejected him. The awaited one. So then the question is for you tonight is, what about you in this? What have you done with Jesus because he's your awaited Messiah as well, whether you realize it or not. He's the one that the world needs for deliverance from their sins. Not just the Jews, but also us. And so my question is, have you missed Jesus? Or have you recognized that he is your Messiah, repented from your sins, put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior? Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Though the world misses him and the Jews miss him, not everybody misses Jesus. In John's gospel, the disciples, they don't miss Jesus. They, they come to realize who he is. In John 4, 29, the Samaritans, they don't miss Jesus. In John 4, 35, the, the household of the nobleman whose son is healed by Jesus, they don't miss Jesus. In John 7, 31, it says many of the crowd believed they didn't miss Jesus. And to those that believed, 
To to those that, that recognized him, that would receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. It's a phrase that, that phrase children of God that, that falls on deaf ears for us because we've grown up with that concept being familiar to us. If you've been in the church at all, you've grown up with the concept that you are a child of God. But for the Jewish people, though Israel as a nation was often referred to as God's son or God's child, God's offspring, individually, the Jewish people really had no concept of approaching God as father. And so for, for John to say, look, to those who received Jesus, he gave them the right to become children of God. It's a, a mind-blowing concept for them. And it's a, that same offer that's still there today for you and I. It's this becoming a child or a son of God that Paul picks up on in Romans chapter 8. He says, for we have not received the spirit of timidity that we would fall back into sin, but we've received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We have the spirit of adoption because Jesus came as the long-awaited Messiah and fulfilled the, the promises by dying on the cross for our sins so that we can be forgiven, by raising from the dead so that we can have eternal life and that we can live with God forever as one of his adopted sons. And the offer is still there tonight. And my question is, have you received that offer? Have you put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Or have you missed Jesus for things about Jesus? To receive Jesus is not just simply to be at the church. To receive Jesus is not just simply to show up at men's Bible study. To receive Jesus is not simply to be an honorable man, a good dad, a good husband. Those things are all fine and they're all good in their own rights, but none of them will get you right with the Father. None of them will make you a child of God. The only thing that makes you a child of God is receiving Jesus through faith and repentance. Repentance means turning from your sins, putting your sins behind you, putting them away from you, saying, I'm done with my sin. I'm going to turn away from that no longer to live for myself, but to live for the Lord. Does that mean you're perfect from this moment forward? No, none of us are myself included at the top of that list. But your direction in life has changed from serving yourself to now serving Christ. You're repenting, you're turning, and then you're putting your faith in Jesus. Well, what's your faith in? Your faith is in the fact that that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Your faith is in the fact that he died on the cross for your sins, rose from the dead so that you will live forever with him. And if you will repent from your sins and put your faith in Jesus, the Bible says that you now will become a, a son of God. It's interesting language that he uses here because he says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But notice God's activity in this, in verse 13. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Man, who gets the glory for our salvation? God does. God does. When we are born again, we have as much role to play in that as we did when we were born the first time. How many of you decided to be born? Well, likewise, we didn't decide to be born again. John 1.13, God caused us to be born again. By opening our eyes so that we would be able to receive him, to see him, that he is our 
our Savior. He is the one that we need. Not everyone did, but have you met the awaited Jesus? Have you received Christ? Well, if in the beginning was the word was a startling way to open. It only gets more amazing in John 1.14 with these next five words. And the word became flesh. And the word became flesh. You'll notice in John's gospel, there's no Mary and Joseph. There's no wise men. There's no manger. There's no angels. There's, there's, there's none of it. You want the Christmas story in John's gospel? We just read it. And the word became flesh. Here it is. This is the nativity. This is everything in Luke's gospel boiled down to five words. I wonder if John ever gave Luke a hard time. It took you two chapters to say what I said in five words. <laughs> Come on, guy. No, we're thankful that Luke wrote what he did, right? But this is, the, this is the incarnation. This is the Christmas story. The word, the eternal God, the long-awaited word, the word that was the fulfillment of all things, the true light, right? The word became flesh. John's brevity is meant to shock us here. Such an amazingly significant statement. It's meant to, to take us aback, to catch us off guard, to cause us to do a double take. Have you ever had that happen where somebody just casually delivers news to you that is just earth-shattering and life-changing? And like it's no big deal? I remember, I, I can't remember which of my kids it was because I've got too many of them. I've got five of them. Not too many. I've got enough. I've got exactly the number that God wants and I love all of them equally. But I don't remember which one it was of the five or, or I know it wasn't the last two because we were both shocked at that one. But I remember my wife got up one night and went and used the restroom. She came back and she got back in bed. And I, as happens probably to you men as well, you wake up as, as your wife is moving about. And I leaned over and I said, everything okay? And she said, yeah, I just took a pregnancy test and I'm pregnant again. Good night. <laughs> Boom! Sitting up straight in bed. What? And she fell back asleep. And then I'm sitting up the rest of the night going, what in the world? It's the shock value though, right? Well, John's doing that. But we should feel far more shock about this statement on the screen than I did about that statement. And what is perhaps the single most amazing moment in created history where the eternal word of God, the creator of all things, enters into his creation where God, very God, takes on full humanity to himself without giving up an ounce of his full deity. That moment John describes by saying, and the word became flesh. The word became, best understood, is, is added to. The word added full humanity to himself. Humanity added to full deity without the two blending, without the two intermingling at all. It's what we call in theological circles the hypostatic union. That Jesus is both 100% man and 100% God. Two separate natures coexisting in one person without confusion, without bleeding or intermingling one into the other. This is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And the word added to himself, the flesh. Flesh here is not to be understood in the Pauline sense where it has the negative connotations of sin in the sin nature. Because when Jesus, the full eternal God, took on full humanity, he did not take on a sin nature to himself. 
He did not take on the corruption of the flesh the way that you and I possess the corruption of the flesh from the moment that we were born. No, rather, he took on full humanity in the sense that it was fully human, but yet not part of the, the corrupt line of, of, of Adam where it's corrupted from the, the, the moment that he was born. See, John is contrasting here with this term flesh, the, the glorious abode of the heavens that Jesus once inhabited to, with the, the base, frail nature of the humanity that he took on himself. And everything that's contained in that statement, for us to ponder and consider and think about, that our Savior, that the, the, the God of this universe became flesh, and, and not just took on flesh, but took on flesh in the form of an infant. I mean, in, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is, is going for the amazing factor there when he says he, he came in the appearance of a, of, of a man, being found in the likeness of a man in the form of a servant, right? But even more based than that, he came as an infant. He needed his diaper changed, his bottom wiped. He needed to be taught how to walk. He needed to be taught how to talk. And this is the God of the universe. And the word became flesh. And John says not just that he became flesh, but he dwelt among us. It's the word that in the Septuagint is the same word for the Greek, in the Greek for the word tabernacle. The, the place where God's holiness, where God's presence, where God's glory took up temporal residence with Israel. John is saying here, he tabernacled with us in John 1.14. He didn't just come for a, a, a skip off the surface of the earth and then go back to the, the heavens. No, he came and, and resided with us, dwelt with us. When he says among us right there, it should primarily be understood as, as the disciples. Those that were the eyewitnesses, as we'll see in a, in a little while here in our study, of his glory. Because that's what he goes on to say. He says he dwelt among us, he lived with us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. This is another astounding statement from John. In Exodus 34, Moses prayed that Yahweh would show him his glory. The Lord responded by taking Moses and hiding him in a rock face and passing by and allowing him to see, metaphorically speaking, the backside of his glory. In Isaiah 6, the prophet is ushered into the presence of the glory of the, uh, the, the, the fully transcendent Jesus sitting on the throne. And the prophet is left to, to say, woe is me, I'm undone, I am damned. If nothing happens, I am lost. And Daniel 10, Daniel sees the, the vision of a man, the vision of the glory of the Lord in this image of the man. And Daniel falls on his face. In Ezekiel 1, this, a similar thing happens. He sees a, a vision of the glory of the Lord and he's overwhelmed and undone by it. And John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father. Never before in all of human history had the glory of God been seen in a man. I mean, you had Moses who would go up on the mountain and meet with God and God would speak to him as it says mouth to mouth. And when Moses came back down, he had to put a veil over his face because his face was glowing so much from being in the presence of God that the people couldn't even look at Moses' face, which is a reflection of the glory of God. Well, men, as Moses veiled his face with that fabric, so the incarnate word veiled the full force of his glory with the flesh of his humanity. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the Father. Jesus was uniquely qualified to reveal that glory. Look at verse 18 again. I told you we would hit it again. No one has ever seen God, the only God, 
the only God who is at the Father's side, this is Jesus, he has made him known. It's the word for exegete there in the Greek. He has explained him. He has shown us. He has revealed him. He has exegeted the Father, the Son has. And he's uniquely qualified to do that because he is the Son of God. That's why the older translations say he is the only begotten Son of God. Unique among all. We have seen his glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth is this Son. Full of grace and truth, he says in verse 14. Look again, though, at verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received what? Grace upon grace. Sorry, I'm not Philip DeCourcy. I can't give that near the, the weight that it should have. If you guys don't know Philip, he's got an Irish accent or Scottish accent. I get those two confused. But it sounds amazing because he rolls the R's. I'm not going to try it because I'll just butcher it. But we have received grace upon grace from this incarnate one. Men, do we understand for us to receive grace, the incarnation was necessary. Grace necessitated the incarnation. Without the incarnation, we can't receive grace because grace flows through the cross. And so John is saying, look, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace because he is full of grace and truth. If you've ever taken your kids or your grandkids or you've ever been to a splash park, one of my favorite things at the splash park to watch is the gigantic bucket that's on the hinges that's just being filled with water, if you've ever seen that. And all the kids, they gather at the foot of the, the bucket and that bucket fills up more and more and more and more and then it, then it tips over and it's this flood of water that crashes down on the kids and they all go running and screaming. They love it and then they come back again until it fills, fills up and, and happens again. Y'all, this is a little bit like what John's talking about, about the fact that in Christ we've received grace upon grace except the bucket never empties. That Jesus was the one who was going to come and he was going to bring the fullness of God's grace upon us. He was going to deluge our lives with the grace of God. He was going to do that through living a perfectly obedient life. He was going to do that through going to the cross for our sins and rising from the dead. But here's the thing in the reality, man, none of that was expected. The awaited Messiah that the Jews had missed was a political Messiah, a military Messiah that they thought was coming. One to deal with Rome, one to restore them to glory of, of, of Solomon. No one could have anticipated the type of Messiah that came. And I think it's apropos this startling statement, and the word became flesh, is John introducing us to the unexpected Jesus. That's point number three tonight. Meet the unexpected Jesus. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. He's contrasting here, and he's talking to a group that had only known the law prior to this. Men, in life, there are two castles in which you can take refuge. The first castle from the outside, it looks great. It looks like it will protect you and defend you, and it's got the, the thin windows in it for the archers to be there, and it looks strong, and it looks sufficient for you, but as soon as you step through the door, you turn around and realize that it's nothing but a facade. Man, that castle is the law. And when we put our confidence and our trust there and we, we look to the law to deliver us, the law looks like it can deliver us by promising that if we're good enough, that we will be acceptable to the Lord, that we will be safe, that we will be delivered. But what we will find is what Paul hammers home over and over again in Galatians and Romans and the other epistles is this. The law can never what? Justify you. 
no one can be justified by the law because the law standard is absolute perfection, sinlessness. And none of us in this room measure up to that. Again, myself at the top of that list. And so if the law can't save us, well, we need another fortress. We need another refuge to run to. And that's the second castle that you can seek refuge in. And that one is the castle of Christ, the castle of grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth have come through Christ. In fact, it was the law that is what is meant to point us to Jesus. Because the law is meant to reveal our sin and reveal our need for grace. And John is saying, grace is here and is found in Jesus. Do you sense the good news building in John's opening here? That he's holding forth Jesus saying, guys, this is the one. This is the guy. The eternal God. The awaited one. That He became flesh. This is unexpected what he did because he came. He didn't come the way he's going to come back. You want to know he's going to come back? Read Revelation 19. He's going to come back as the conquering warrior. The divine judge. But that's not how he first came. He could have. He had every right to, but no, he came as the infant. Not to bring judgment, to, but to bring grace upon grace. John is saying, meet Jesus. Jesus is here. And he's going to explain more about this Jesus through the rest of his gospel. This opening is amazing. It's introducing us to Christ in a way that only John, through the, the inspiration and being carried along, as, as Peter says, by the Holy Spirit, could do it. And men, there's so much here, and I, and I apologize, there's so much here that's left untapped. And I would encourage you and commend you to, to, to do more study into this, and I know you will during your small groups as well. But I can't help, as we close here, as, as we think of these 18 verses, but think of the movie Gladiator, which I know is where all of you went as well. But there's that scene in Gladiator, and it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, where Maximus is gaining in popularity, and the crowd is going crazy. And Maximus is this slave, right, that's been taken captive, and he's a, a gladiator slave, and he's not supposed to win the crowd over. But the crowd is, is enthralled by this guy because he's a former military commander in the Roman army. So he's taking no prisoners, and he is dominating, Right? And he's doing, he's, they're, they're the underdogs. They're not supposed to win and they're winning every match. And the crowd is going nuts. And he's looking around the arena and he's holding his sword in his hand at one point. And he takes his sword and he just hurls it up and towards the VIP boxes. And it clatters onto the ground and knocks a bunch of stuff over and the crowd immediately hushes. And Maximus looks up at the crowd and he asks them a question. He says, are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? Man, I wonder if John, as we read through this, and so many times we read through it just laissez-faire, just like, no, okay, yeah, John 1, 1 through 18, okay, great, I've, I've read this before. I wonder if John would not look at us and go, are you not amazed? Is this not why you are here? To meet Jesus? Did you hear what I said? So, man, I don't know if you've met Jesus tonight. I pray most of you have. And I pray if you haven't, I pray that tonight you will because you can meet him eternally tonight. You can meet him in a way that will change your, your rest of your life tonight. And what a time to do it right on the doorstep of the study of the book of John. The next 20 years of our study is going to be phenomenal for you, right? No, but seriously, men, small group leaders, press in tonight. 
Because that, this is the most significant thing for us. We want to make sure that we have been introduced to Jesus in the most significant way possible, and that's through faith and repentance and through him making us a child of God. Let's pray, man. Father, we are so thankful that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Lord, we are fully aware that we did nothing to earn that, nothing to merit that, nothing to draw that. In fact, we were unlovely when you loved us to that extent. Lord, on the doorstep of the study of the gospel of John, I just pray that this would be a study that increasingly stirs our affection for Christ. Helps us to learn more of who Jesus is, to love Jesus more, to want to follow him more with our lives, to have an encounter with him that transforms us and continues to transform us and conform us into his image the way it did with his disciples. As they walked with him, as they saw firsthand what we're going to read about here, their lives were radically transformed. God, we want our lives to to look even a, a shadow of what theirs looked like. Leaving everything to say, I'm going to follow Christ. So many of them even being willing to go to the their own death because of their love for Jesus. Father, I pray that you would keep us from presumption of thinking that we know it because we've already looked at this, we've already read it, we've already studied this. I pray that we would read it afresh. I pray that we would read it with humility. I pray that we would read it just excited, amazed as we continue to meet more and learn more about Jesus, about the word of God. We pray that you'd be pleased with the rest of our time together tonight in Jesus.